0: Please open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading in verse 7 and then read through the rest of the chapter. Again, Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden. And there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. The bdellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria and the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. and to the birds of the sky, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we honor you this morning as our creator. Father, we thank you that you are the one who made us. You have designed our bodies. You have designed our souls. You have created us in such a marvelous, magnificent way. And we thank you that not only did you make Adam, but from him you made Eve. And that you are the creator of the institution of marriage. We thank you for your words, O God, that it is not good for the man to be alone. That you will make him a helper suitable for him. And Father, we thank you not only for the joy and the companionship and the blessing that marriage is... We thank you how it ultimately points to another marriage. That is our marriage between Christ and his bride. Father, we thank you that we are the church that has been bought by the blood of Christ. That he gave himself up for his bride. And that we are joined to Christ both now and forever. We are secure in his love. He will never cast us off or divorce us. We thank you for your faithful love. Even when we are unfaithful, even when we sin, you still love us. Father, I pray that as we begin this morning to look at a passage in Colossians about marriage and the family. That you would teach us much about your design for marriage and the family. How you have called us to live in the home. How we are to honor Christ as wives and husbands and parents and children And I pray that you will take your word, O God, and use it to strengthen the families of this church, every individual in this church. We love you, we honor you, we worship you, we give our lives to you. And it is our joy to give to you, to sing to you, to pray to you, and to hear you speak to us. Through your word. Father, we pray that you will receive our worship, for we offer it to you with clean hands and a pure heart in the name of your Son, our great Savior. And we pray this for the glory of Christ forevermore. Amen. Please open your Bibles with me once again to Colossians chapter 3, and I want to direct your attention to verse 18. The title of our message is The New Humanity at Home, part 1. As we begin this new section in Paul's letter, I want to read beginning in verse 18 down through chapter 4 and verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, wives... Be subject to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, so that they will not lose heart. Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong, which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. This is the sacred and holy word of God. More than 100 years ago, in the year 1908, Dutch theologian Herman Bavinck published a book entitled The Christian Family. In the very first sentence of that book he writes this and I quote: The history of the human race begins with a wedding. That is a very helpful insight. But not only does the Bible begin with a wedding, it ends with a wedding. The Bible begins in Genesis with the marriage between a man and a woman, and it ends in Revelation with the marriage between Jesus Christ and his beloved bride, for whom he gave his life. That is to say, marriage is God's idea. Marriage is not the result of the evolution of the human race, nor is it a social construct created by man. Instead, marriage has a divine, a heavenly origin. It flows out of the mind of God, and it was created for our good. When you consider the Christian worldview, part of this includes the Christian view of marriage and family. According to the Bible, marriage was created by God as the first and the most important institution of human society. It is the bedrock of all of human society. In Genesis chapter 1, we learn that God created the entire universe in six literal days. And on the sixth day, God created 3 things, the land animals, the insects, and last of all, he created mankind. The order of creation is important because the fact that humanity was the final act of God's creative work reveals that we, we are the crowning achievement of God's creation. Moreover, of all that God made, it is only the human race that he made in his own image both male and female. In Genesis chapter 1, we have the the big picture of creation, of mankind, if you will. And then in Genesis chapter 2, we have a more detailed account of God's creation of mankind. In Genesis chapter 2, we learn that God created the first man, Adam, from the dust of the ground. And then he placed him in a garden, the Garden of Eden. Then God said to Adam, the first man, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. God then called all of the animals that he made and he had them walk in front of Adam and Adam named all of those animals. But of all of the animals that God made, Genesis 2 tells us there was not found a helper suitable for him. Animals are a wonderful part of God's creation. Animals can make wonderful pets, but animals are not capable of being a suitable companion in marriage. I will never forget many years ago reading the story of a person who married a dolphin. I don't think that that relationship lasted very long. And so God did something remarkable. He gave Adam a divine anesthetic, he put him to sleep, and he performed an operation, one that we might call a rib-ectomy. God removed one of Adam's ribs, and from it he created woman. God then brought her to the man, and do you know what Adam said when he laid eyes upon Eve? Whoa, Man! He had literally never seen anything like Eve. She was the most beautiful creature God had made. In Genesis 2.23, the man said, This is now, speaking of Eve, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That language is so beautiful. It is so rich. It is so blessed. On your sermon notes, you will see a quote by Herman Bavink, whom I mentioned at the very beginning of our message. And in his book on the Christian family, he says, Yet even though the woman was not created by the man, she was nonetheless created from the man. That is remarkable. That is intentional and that is rich. God created woman from the man in order to demonstrate the suitableness and the intimacy that God intends a man and a woman to share together in marriage. One of my favorite quotes on God's creation of woman comes from Matthew Henry. It's also on your sermon notes. I I could never say it like this. The woman was not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. That is extraordinary. Thank God for Matthew Henry. And so the woman was made from the man, And then they were joined together in marriage, and they became one flesh. We could say that it was a match made in heaven. The history of the human race truly begins with a wedding. Adam and Eve enjoyed the sweetness of human companionship. In fact, for a while, theirs was a perfect marriage. That is, until Genesis 3, when they fell into sin. You are all familiar with the story, the serpent deceived Eve and led her to disobey the one prohibition that God had given to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve ate from the forbidden tree and she gave also to her husband and he ate and in that very moment sin for the first time entered into their hearts and it entered into the world bringing severe and far-reaching and lasting consequences. Consequences that we still feel today. When Adam and Eve sin, in Genesis chapter 3, we learn that God cursed the serpent. He cursed the woman, he cursed the earth, and he cursed the man. And when God spoke to the woman, he announced that she would experience two things... As a result of her sin, the first is pain in childbearing and the second, listen carefully, is turmoil in marriage. Childbearing, pain, and turmoil in marriage. Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16. This is a verse that many of you no doubt are familiar with, but it is good to be reminded of what this verse tells us about the consequences of the fall. Genesis 3.16, To the woman, he that is God said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband. And he will rule over you. Now the things God says here about the woman's relationship with her husband, they are not positive. They are negative. The desire of the woman and the rule of the man that are both mentioned here in verse 16 are not good things. They are consequences of sin in the marriage relationship. This is the origin of the battle of the sexes. This is where it begins. The harmonious relationship between a husband and a wife would from here on be marked by an ugly and sad and tragic battle of self-will. Sin makes us inward, sin makes us selfish, and when you put two self-centered people together in a marriage relationship, it can be very, very difficult. Because of sin, the woman's desire for her husband is no longer to follow his leadership, but to control him and to manipulate him for her selfish purposes, This same phrase in Genesis 3.16 is used in chapter 4 and verse 7. So turn to chapter 4 and verse 7. God is speaking to Cain, and he is warning him, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, here's the key phrase, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Desire and master, same verbs, From Genesis 3.16, Desire and Rule, God warned Cain that sin's desire is for you in a destructive way, and as it is sin's desire to control Cain, so it is the tendency of a fallen woman to control her husband and to usurp his leadership. Additionally, the man's desire would no longer be to lovingly care for and lead his wife, but to rule over her in an oppressive way. To state it lightly, the entrance of sin has caused a rift between male and female relationships. This is why marriage can be so hard. I have seen reports that less and less people in our culture are getting married. Some people think that marriage is the problem. There's a problem with marriage. But the problem does not lie in the institution of marriage. Rather, the problem lies within us and what sin has done to us and how it negatively affects the marriage relationship. It has been said that there are three rings in marriage. The first is the engagement ring, the second is the wedding ring, and the third is suffering. And anyone who has been married knows that to be true. And so, dear people, according to the testimony of the Bible, we learned that God himself created the institution of marriage for our companionship, for our flourishing, and as the bedrock of all human society. But we also learned that because of our sin, marriage is hard. And it is painful. But there is still good news. Even in a fallen world, God still intends marriage to be a rich and fulfilling blessing, especially to those who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. God has not left us to ourselves to figure out how to live out the marriage relationship As the creator of marriage and the family, God has given us his blueprint for how marriage and family are to function and to be lived out even in a fallen world. And a portion of this blueprint, this divine blueprint, is revealed in the passage that is before us in Colossians chapter 3. For the last couple of months, we have been studying Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 17. And in that great and glorious passage, the Apostle Paul addresses the church as a whole, as a whole. But beginning in verse 18 of chapter 3 and going through chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul turns a corner and he begins to address specific groups of people within the church. Wives and husbands and children and fathers and slaves and masters. And so in this new section of the letter, Paul turns his attention from the spiritual family of the church as a whole to the physical family that is in the home. And in this section on the family, Paul addresses three relationships within the Christian home. The first is wives and husbands in verses 18 and 19. The second is children and parents in verses 20 and 21. And the third, and this will require more explanation down the road, slaves and masters in the majority of the passage. In each of these relationships, Paul emphasizes the distinctive roles that each group is to live out. Now, as we have already learned over the last few months, the church is the new humanity in Christ. Despite whatever worldly differences there may be, in Christ we are one. The church is a diverse group of people with different cultural backgrounds, different ethnicities, different socioeconomic backgrounds, but as Christians, these differences do not ultimately matter. We do not find our ultimate identity in our cultural background, in our ethnicity, in our level of education, in our economic standing, or in our gender. Instead, we find our ultimate identity in Christ. We are one in Christ, Paul argues so wonderfully in Colossians 3, 1-17. And so together, we are a new humanity in Christ. But, but, with that said, it is very critical to understand that the fact that we are a new humanity in Christ does not eliminate distinctive roles among us within the church. In his wisdom, God has built into human society as a whole and into the church in particular the reality of authority and submission to authority, and he has done that for our good. On your notes, there is a divinely instituted hierarchy of authority that I want you to see. And you can see the passages. We won't take the time to look at all of these verses. You can look them up on your own. But it is very obvious, very easy to read the Word of God and to see that God has made the world with a divinely instituted hierarchy of authority. Number one, all Christians are to submit to God. Number two, citizens are to submit to human government. Number three, the church is to submit to Christ. Number four, church members are to submit to church leaders. Number five, wives are to submit to their husbands. Number six, children are to submit to their parents. And then number seven, slaves are to submit to their masters. And so there is a divinely instituted hierarchy of authority for our good. But as sinful people, we naturally resist authority. We are naturally autonomous. We want to be a law unto ourselves. We do not want anyone to tell us what to do. We want to do what we want to do. In fact, we are offended if anyone tells us what to do. We resist when anyone tells us what to do. We are first and foremost naturally rebellious against God, who is our ultimate authority, And secondly, we are naturally rebellious against the duly constituted authorities that God has established in the world and in the church. But one of the many changes that takes place in the life of a person who comes to salvation in Jesus Christ is his or her change of perspective of authority. When God saved me, In the summer of 1992, my view of authority changed. My attitude toward authority changed. By the grace of God, we recognize as Christians the place of authority. We seek to submit to authority. By the grace of God, God subdues our rebellious hearts, and he causes us to be submissive to proper authority. As Christians, we all gladly submit to the authority of God. We all gladly submit to the authority of God's word, which is our ultimate rule of faith and practice in all matters. We all gladly submit to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we also are to gladly submit to certain people whom God has placed into positions of authority. Now, let me mention a few observations about our passage in Colossians 3. Paul addresses three relationships in the home, beginning with the most intimate relationship and then moving to the lesser intimate ones. The first is marriage, then parenting, and then slaves and masters. Another observation is this. Paul follows a consistent structure in each of these relationships. He begins each pair by first addressing the group that is called to be submissive, namely wives and children and slaves. He addresses these three groups by directly naming them, by giving them the command to be submissive, and then giving them the proper motivation for obedience to the command of God. And each motivation, we will see, is focused upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a gospel motivation. Paul then addresses those who are in authority, husbands, parents, and masters. He addresses these three groups by directly naming them And then he gives them each the command to exercise their authority in the right way, in the right manner, in a righteous and godly manner. And so these three relationships between wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters, are not the same. They are three different kinds of relationships, but they all have this in common— distinctive roles involving submission to authority. Now, we are going to look at all six of these groups one at a time, and we begin with Paul's address to Christian wives in verse 18. What Paul says in this one verse is so countercultural to our world's view of marriage. It is even offensive to the world's view Of marriage. In fact, it is so offensive that if you were to simply read Colossians chapter 3 and verse 18 in certain public places, you would elicit tremendous anger against you. Read this verse in a university classroom out loud, go to a city hall and read this verse out loud. In fact, you might even get into great trouble reading this verse in certain Christian denominations. There is a tremendous amount of controversy around the subject that we are looking at. I do not take this lightly. I want to handle it very carefully, very graciously. There is much for us to consider here. And so as we think about what Paul says to Christian wives... It's going to take us two weeks to cover verse 18. We are going to look at Paul's instruction to Christian wives under two headings. You can see these on the back of your sermon notes. We begin with the divine design of submission in marriage, and then we follow that with the divine motivation of submission in marriage. And so we begin with point number one the divine design of submission in marriage in verse 18. The first word of the verse is wives. Again, you will notice that Paul directly addresses a particular group within the church, wives. He is speaking directly to them. Now note that he is not directly addressing all the women of the church, but those women who are married. Now, as a footnote, in our culture of insanity, and I, I do not think that is an exaggeration, we are living in a culture of insanity which grows more insane every single day. In our culture of insanity, it is important to be reminded that there is no gender confusion in the Bible. None. The Bible could not be more clear that there are two and only two genders, male and female, The Bible further teaches that a person's gender is not determined by how one feels or by how they choose to identify themselves, but according to genetics, biology, and the sovereign will of God. The desire then to identify oneself as the opposite sex is the result of unnatural Disordered and sinful desires. And we must be gracious with people in this matter, but firm and not compromising the truth of God, no matter what pressure is brought to bear upon us. Also, the Bible could not be more clear that the institution of marriage is exclusively between a man and a woman. There is no such thing, listen to my words, there is no such thing as homosexual marriage. It is not legitimate marriage. It is a perversion of marriage. It is rebellion against God's order within marriage. God created marriage. He has the right to govern it and design it, and he has. And so in verses 18 and 19, Paul's language is gender-specific And he recognizes that there are only two genders, male and female, and that marriage is exclusively between a man and a woman. Now, as Paul directly addresses Christian wives, he gives them a command. Be subject. Or your translation might read, be submissive. Or your translation might read, submit. They all mean the same thing. It is remarkable how brief Paul's instruction on marriage is. It's only two verses in this chapter, verses 18 and 19. There are so many things that could and should be said about the roles and responsibilities of husbands and wives, and yet Paul is concerned to give just one, just one overarching responsibility to each wives and husbands. And the overarching responsibility that he gives to Christian wives in marriage is submission. Now, it's quite popular these days for people to say that the word submit does not mean submit. They try to explain its meaning away, and they can be very clever in doing it. But in so doing, they are guilty of imposing their own ideas, the world's ideas, upon the Bible rather than letting the Bible speak for itself. And so with the rest of our time this morning, I want us to think carefully about what the word submit means. And so from henceforth this morning, it's sort of a word study, sort of will feel more like a classroom The Greek verb that Paul uses for submit, it's on your notes, is hupotasso, hupotasso, very common Greek New Testament word. It literally means to place under. So if you can get that picture in your mind, to place under, to be subordinate, to put oneself under a leader. It was used of soldiers in the ancient world who submitted to those of superior rank. That's a very clear picture. We all can appreciate that kind of military concept of submission. It's a term that has to do with order. It's a term that has to do with authority and submission to authority. And so the word submit means submit. Submission means submission. Be subject means be subject. Now, with that said, I want to make four points of clarification for how Paul uses this word, hupotasso, in marriage, and these are listed on your sermon notes. These are all so important. Number one, it is a limited submission. Paul commands Christian wives to be subject to whom? Is it to all men? No, he says, wives, be subject to your husbands. And so Paul is very specific to whom the Christian wife is to submit. She is not called to submit to all men, but to one man, to her husband. And so it is a limited submission. Number two, it is a voluntary submission. Paul's command for Christian wives to submit to their husband is a voluntary submission. What what do I mean by that? What I mean is that Paul is talking about submission, not subjugation. And there is a huge difference. Paul does not tell the husbands to subjugate their wives, Paul does not tell the husbands to force their wives to submit. There is none of that here. Instead, Paul calls on Christian wives to voluntarily submit to their husbands. And so this is a voluntary submission. Thirdly, it is a co equal submission, a co equal submission. Paul's command for Christian wives to submit to their husbands does not imply inferiority or inequality on the part of the wife. A distinction in roles between wives and husbands does not mean that women are inferior and that men are superior. That is not biblical thinking. The Bible is very clear that there is equality between men and women. Men and women are both equally made in the image of God, Genesis 1, 27. And so it's not that men alone were made in the image of God and women were not. The Bible says both are equally made in the image of God. And the Bible further says that men and women are equal in Christ. Think about Galatians three twenty There is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. We are all one in Christ. And so if you are a Christian woman, and if you are a Christian man, you are one in Christ. You are brothers and sisters. And that is beautiful. And so men are not better than women. Men are not intellectually or spiritually superior to women. In fact, I often observe that within a couple, within a family, the Christian wife is oftentimes more spiritually mature than her husband. That's certainly not always the case, but it's often the case. But even when it is the case, it has nothing to do with gender. And so while the word submit can be used in a relationship of inequality, such as when it was used in a military context of a soldier of lower rank submitting to a superior soldier, by itself, the word by itself does not mean inequality. It is a word that can be used of submission among equals. Let me give you one great example. Can you think of one great example of submission between equals? Jesus. To whom does Jesus submit? Hupatasso? the Father. Jesus is equal to the Father. And yet, he submits to the father because the father and the son have distinctive roles. And so, their equality, their oneness does not negate distinction in roles. That's true within the Trinity. It's true within marriage. And so, submission can be among equals. And that's how it is within marriage. In fact, let me say it like this. This word can also be used of a superior person. Submitting to an inferior person. Can you think of an example of that in the Bible? It's the same example, Jesus. And in Luke chapter 2, verse 51, it says that Jesus continued to hoop a tasso to his parents. He submitted to Joseph and Mary, to their authority. And I find that remarkable. Jesus is God. Joseph and Mary are creatures, and yet Jesus submitted to them? And what is more, Jesus created Joseph and Mary, and yet he submits to them because of their place of authority as parents in his life as a child. And so when Paul commands Christian wives to submit to their husband, it is a co-equal submission, a submission among equals. And then fourthly, it is a one-directional submission. This point will take a little bit more time and perhaps more careful thinking. At this point, I want to mention two terms that that may be familiar to almost all of you, egalitarian and complementarian. They are listed there on your notes. These are two terms which represent two views, two perspectives, Of biblical manhood and womanhood. You have the egalitarian side and you have the complementarian side. And ever since I have been a Christian, there has been a controversy at this very juncture. In fact, I think it may be fair to say that this may be one of the greatest controversies I've seen within evangelicalism. And it is really raging these days with social justice and a host of other things. So what do these terms mean? What, what is egalitarianism, and what is complementarianism? Well, if you look at your notes, I provided a definition of egalitarianism, and by the way, it is also called evangelical feminism, and it is this. Egalitarianism is the view that God created men and women to be equal in everything. Thus, there are no distinct gender-specific roles for men and women in either the church or the home. And so that's the egalitarian position. No distinction of roles between men and women in either the home or the church. Everything is the same. There's just an equality across the board. And then on the other side of the divide is complementarianism. And that is the view that God created both men and women equally in his image and that both men and women are one in Christ, but according to God's good and wise design, men and women have distinct gender-specific roles in the church and in the home, that when lived out, complement one another. And hence the word complementarian or complementarianism. Different roles, and these roles are not at odds. They are not enemies. They complement one another. And so these roles are good. They are designed by God. They are to be celebrated by God's people. Now, with respect to marriage, egalitarians teach what is called mutual submission. In other words, wives and husbands both submit to each other in the same way. That's mutual submission. That's an egalitarian doctrine. Submission in marriage is not one-directional, but instead it is two-directional. There is no unique kind of submission that a wife owes to her husband, nor is there any unique kind of authority that a husband has with respect to his wife. And the primary verse that they use is Ephesians 5.21. So let's turn to Ephesians 5.21. You might remember that Ephesians and Colossians are sister epistles. They're both written by Paul from the same place of imprisonment, And the content of these two letters is very similar. And we find that especially as we get to the Christian home here in Ephesians chapter 5 and comparing it to Colossians chapter 3. But look, if you would, at Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21. And the verse reads, And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. According to the egalitarian interpretation of Ephesians 5.21, It teaches that all Christians are to submit to each other. They would say this is true generally. We're all submitting one to another. And then they apply it specifically to the marriage relationship so that the husband and the wife both submit to each other in the same way. So it's a two-directional kind of submission. Egalitarians say something like this. Of course we believe that the wife is to be submissive to her husband. But we also believe that the husband is to be submissive to his wife. It is mutual submission. It goes in both directions, not just in one direction. Now Wayne Grudem, who is one of the greatest theologians of our day and one of the most prolific advocates of complementarianism, wrote a chapter entitled, The Myth of Mutual Submission as an Interpretation of Ephesians 5.21. And so you can see what Dr. Grudem thinks about that particular interpretation, The Myth of Mutual Submission as an Interpretation of Ephesians 5.21. So according to Grudem, the idea that Ephesians 5.21 teaches mutual submission is a myth. It's one of those examples of imposing your own ideas onto the text rather than allowing the text to speak for itself. And I agree with Dr. Grudem, not because because he is some authority, but because he is rightly handling the word of God. Now think back to that divinely instituted hierarchy of authority that we looked at earlier. In those seven relationships, submission is always one-directional. It's never two-directional. The Bible does not teach that God submits to us. It doesn't speak that way. The Bible doesn't teach that the government submits to citizens. Or that Christ submits to the church. Or that husbands submit to their wives. Or that parents submit to their children. Or that masters submit to their slaves. It's always one-directional. Always one-directional. So when Paul says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ, he is not saying that everyone is to submit to everyone. He is saying that some are to submit to others within the body of Christ. It is a general statement that Paul gives about Christians being submissive, and then in the rest of the passage in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul gives three specific ways this is to be done. Beginning with wives in verse 22, wives are to submit to their husbands. And then in chapter 6 and verse 1, children are to submit to their parents. And then in chapter 6 and verse 5, slaves are to submit to their masters. These are three ways that some are to submit to others within the church. Now, if verse 21 means mutual submission as egalitarians say it does, then what you have in the rest of passage, in the rest of the passage, is that husbands are submitting to their wives, parents are submitting to their children, and masters are submitting to their slaves. But that isn't what Paul says at all. If you look carefully at the passage, look at verse 24 with respect to marriage and wives, but as the church is subject to Christ so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. And then as he addresses the husbands in verses 25 and following, he never calls them to submit as he calls the wives to submit. In chapter 6 and verse 1, as he addresses children, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then as he addresses parents, he doesn't tell the parents to obey the children or submit to the children. And then in verse 5, as he addresses slaves, slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and sincerity of your heart as to Christ. And then when he addresses masters, he doesn't give them the same command. He doesn't tell masters to submit to slaves. And so it is very clearly a one-directional kind of submission. And so the word submit means to place oneself under a leader. In the marriage relationship, the Christian wife is called to the role of submission. And what we have learned so far is that it is a limited submission. It is limited to her own husband, not to all men. It is a voluntary submission. The husband is not permitted to subjugate the wife. It is a co-equal submission, a submission between equals, and it is a one-directional submission. The husband has a unique role of leadership and headship in the home to whom the wife is to submit. But what does this look like in the marriage on a day-in and day-out basis? You'll have to wait until next time for that. And then... The week after that, we address husbands, so we will deal with that when God permits. Our Father, we thank you for giving us this time. It seems so brief, the time that we've had in your word, and we know that we have only been able to cover a portion of what you would have us to know as we think about marriage and the roles of wives and husbands But I pray that, oh God, that you would cause these things that we have learned today and been reminded to refresh our hearts, to instruct our minds, to encourage us to live out marriage and family as you have designed it. We acknowledge that you made marriage and that you are also the one who has designed it the way that you have. And so even as we think about the great controversy that swirls around the idea of submission, Father, we submit to your word. And we trust you that you have designed it this way for a good reason. We love you, we give ourselves to you, and Father, again, we thank you for your Son we thank you that he died for his bride, that he shed his precious blood, that he might make a people who once were not a people to be his people and to be his beloved bride for the rest of eternity. And Father, as we think about these things, we know from your word that we will forever live in a marriage relationship with Christ, that we will forever gladly submit to his rule and his authority over us. And Father, we pray this humbly and gratefully in the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let's stand and sing hymn number 25 together. Twenty five. The perfect.